We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. We welcome all to St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. I am Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's. We're delighted to have our guests with us in the gymnasium today here live and in person, and also delighted to have our guests via KFUO 850 AM and worldwide KFUO.org. Uh, for those uh, in the gymnasium, as usual, we have uh, sheets available on the side that have the scripture readings on them that we're going to be covering this morning. Uh, also, a little commercial for those that are in the St. Louis area. Uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock here at St. Paul's, the American Contouri will be presenting a sacred concert. And so we certainly invite anyone within a reasonable drive who would like to attend, or even if you have an unreasonable drive and would like to attend, we welcome you as well. All right, today we're going to be looking at the lessons for the scripture lessons that are assigned for Sunday, November 18. As is our usual custom, we're looking at the lessons for the coming Sunday, not today's lessons, but next week's lessons. With that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings to us and all the promises in your word concerning death and life. And especially as we look today at your word, and to look forward to that last day when your son will return. We pray your Holy Spirit's guidance would bless and would kindle in us an even more uh, enthusiasm and eager, eager anticipation of that day for us and for all believers. Be with us then to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to be approaching the end of the church year. Remember that the church year calendar is different from our our January through December calendar, in that the church year is going to begin in Advent with the first Sunday in Advent, which will be at the end of this month, November. And so the Sundays before the end of the church year, the lessons many times are talking about the end of time. It's kind of a, a putting together of two different themes, that as the church year comes to a close, we look forward to the time when all of time will come to a close here on this earth. And so you'll see that theme repeatedly uh, in our lessons, both in our Old Testament and our Gospel lesson. And there's a, a, a touch of it also uh, in our lesson, uh, second lesson from the book of Hebrews. Uh, just as a little side note, it's, it's a little frustrating when you're preaching this time of the church year because you keep hearing the same theme uh, toward the end of uh, time, and then you get into Advent, you know, in November and, and through December 23 this year, and guess what theme comes up periodically again? The end times, because in Advent we think about the coming of Christ, both his coming obviously the first time in his incarnation, his coming to us in word and sacrament, and his eventual final coming to us. So again, as, as preachers, we kind of sit down together and say, well, what are you preaching on next week? And uh, make sure we're not, in effect, writing the, almost the same sermon, just with a different text. So that's a little, maybe that's more than you wanted to know uh, about this uh, thing. Now, Daniel, first lesson, Old Testament lesson is from Daniel, verse, uh, 
chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And the book of Daniel is a, is a wonderful, amazing book, and we're going to see in verse 2 of our text one of the clearest Old Testament passages concerning the resurrection of the dead. It is a wonderful passage, and we'll get to that. But just a little background in terms of Daniel, when Daniel was written, what was going on at that time. Uh, you remember, first of all, that uh, God brought judgment upon his people, both upon the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians were raised up by God and conquered the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., and after that we really don't hear a whole lot um, about them, as, certainly as an entity, and the Assyrians uh, had a resounding uh, victory over them, and the Assyrians began to come south and bother God's people, but they were held off, and we'll go through all the details of that. Then the Babylonians take over and defeat the Assyrians, and in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom falls, and Jerusalem falls along with it. But prior to that, prior to that 586 final destruction of the south, certainly the Babylonians were harassing and were attacking God's people. And uh, it was in 605 B.C., so 586 that falls, but 605 B.C., uh, about, uh, what is that, 20 years before, uh, Daniel uh, was one of the bright, gifted young men who was taken into captivity in Babylon, along with three other bright young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You heard them before? And Daniel, as a very bright young man, uh, rises in the, uh, what you might call the structure of the uh, Babylonian uh, government, and especially his uh, God-given ability to interpret visions uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, was, would have, uh, distinguished him and allowed him to rise in this prominence. And so you get in the first chapters of Daniel, you get the stories about, for example, Daniel in the lion's den, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and so on. And then the second half of the book of Daniel, you get these visions. And uh, there are four of them. Uh, in chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9 are three of them. And then you get this other one in chapters 9 through uh, 12. And that's the one we're going to be looking at the tail end of today. Just three verses from that, from that last uh, vision that Daniel is given. Okay? So, let's, uh, with that as sort of a, a background or context... Let's take a look. We'll read through verses 1 through 3 of 12 and then go back and kind of take it apart. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right, so let's go back and kind of take this apart now, verse by verse. 
at that time, and so that time, when is that? Uh, that would be uh, at or very near the final day, at or very near the coming of Christ on the last day. Okay, so that time. And notice there, who is mentioned? Michael. Michael is, uh, is an archangel. Now, you know, in the Bible, we have uh, different, we think, different ranks of angels. We have just your plain garden variety angels. Then we have archangels, and we have cherubim and seraphim. And we believe that they are all just simply different ranks of angels. We don't know a lot about it. You would think, for example, that archangel would certainly be, if not the highest, above the highest. But in terms of the ranking versus cherubim and seraphim, uh, we really don't know uh, that much about it. And frankly, we don't need to know that much about it. Angels in the Bible, of course, are primarily messengers. In fact, that's what the word means. But here, notice the archangel Michael, one of two named uh, in the Bible. Who's the other one, uh, another angel named in the Bible? Gabriel, right. So these two are actually named. Uh, and... Uh, in fact, uh, the word Michael means uh, who is like God. That ale at the end is always God in Hebrew, and it means who is like God. That's what his name means. So he is, notice there, the great prince, he's called here. And notice what is his, what is his responsibility. What is he given by God as his responsibility? He is to be what? Yeah, in charge of your people, and specifically in charge of their protection. It's kind of like he is the commander of the heavenly battle that's going to take place against God's people. And we'll get more into this in just a little bit. But he is sort of the commander-in-chief uh, of the forces that will be on God's side opposing the forces of Satan and all of his demons and everything that he is going to rally against the people of God, especially on that day okay so notice there there shall next and this is not good news and there shall be a time of trouble such has such as never has been since there was a nation till that time but at that time your people shall be delivered uh, the scriptures talk about a little season and this is right before the end when Satan will be unleashed and will ravage the church of God. Uh, let's take a look. Uh, those of you that have a Bible, uh, this is mentioned in other places, but let's, let's turn to Matthew, I'm sorry, to uh, Revelation. And we want to look at chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. So Revelation 20. 7 through 9, and we may go a little bit further than that. And this is, again, that short season. It's called a little season when right, at, right before the end, Satan is going to be released. Right now, he's kind of chained up. He's, he's uh, restricted, you might say. He's going to be given a little longer leash. That's one of the questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. Why? Why? Okay. Um, Anyway, let's read this first, and then we'll, we'll talk a little more about it. So we're going to start at verse 7 now. And when the thousand years are ended, 
The thousand years, we as, as uh, Lutherans and a lot of other Christians don't believe it's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ here on this earth, but rather a number that designates the complete time, the full time. So we believe we are living in that time right now. It's, it's another way of describing the New Testament era from the time of Christ's death and resurrection out until the day he comes back, okay? So it says here, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, got, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you get that idea that right before the final end comes, Satan, as it says here, is going to be released from his prison, from his restriction, and will have an opportunity, as it says there, to deceive the nations, to battle against the nations. One other spot we'll look at is Matthew 24. We'll take a look at Matthew 24. Jesus makes reference to this. And we want to look here at verses 22 through 23. So Matthew 24, 22 and 23. And so talking again about the same period, it says there, Jesus says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So out of his mercy, God is going to cut those days short so that the elect, the, the church of God, might be saved, especially, obviously, those who are alive at that time. Okay, So that's what we believe it's being talked about here, that there is a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. So throughout all of history, hasn't been anything that bad as what's going to be right before the end. I remember reading, I can't uh, tell you exactly where it is, but I remember reading that Luther uh, had said that he was glad that he didn't think he would be alive during that time, that the time wouldn't come during his lifetime, because it is going to be all the Christians can do to hold on to their faith. Now, if nothing else, for those who are on earth at that time, it's going to be a time to say, uh, lift up your head, your redemption is drawing near, right? And so not to, not to put God off, but to uh, remain steadfast and immovable in the faith. But it is not going to be a good time, to say the least, okay? But, notice there, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Or you can translate that word, they will be rescued. And that's what we saw in the book of Revelation also, same thing. That fire comes down and consumes them, and, and the devil is thrown into the, the fiery furnace. Now, let's talk about this, uh, that the, uh, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, what book is that? Is that the, uh, is that the membership book here at St. Paul's? Is that, that what we're talking about? <laughs> well, you'll be included. That, that's true. You'll be included in that. 
But no, we're talking here about when it says the book, it's talking about the book of life, God's book of life. And it is mentioned several times throughout the scriptures. Let's just look at a couple of them. Uh, those of you, again, that have a Bible here, let's take a look at Exodus. All the way back in Exodus, Moses makes reference to this. So Exodus 32, and we want to look at uh, verses 32 and 33. So Exodus 32, 32 and 33. Okay, Exodus 32, 32 and 33. And uh, this is Moses now uh, talking with God about the people. Um, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And this is God. Uh, what's happened right before this, historically? They're at Mount Sinai, and what have God's people done? Golden calf. Yeah, one of the, uh, you know, uh, most obvious, I guess you'd say, and outright blatant acts of idolatry in all the Old Testament, and God is angry with them at this point. But the point we want to see here is being blotted out of the book of life. What would that mean if you are blotted out of the book of life? You are no longer saved or, you know, amongst, amongst the redeemed. And notice here, Moses intervenes for his people, and he is volunteering that if you won't forgive them, blot me out of the book. Isn't that amazing? And so it's, he's almost a, a prefigure of who else is going to come and say, instead of blotting them out of the book, blot me out of the book. Christ, exactly. He's going to die instead of his people dying. And Moses here in Exodus 32 is volunteering to do the very same thing. You know, condemn me instead of condemning all the people. But the point I want to make here is this book of life, um, let's look at uh, Revelation again, chapter 20, another spot where this is mentioned again. So back in Revelation, chapter 20, and we want to look at uh, verse 12 of Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Hmm. So you got a book of life that is another book that is opened up. And that's the book for all those who have been redeemed and trust and believe in the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But then you've got other books that are opened. What do you think those other books might be uh, filled with? Because they are judged according to what? Their deeds or works. And so the other books, we think, it's just speculation, is just a way of picturing a complete tally, uh, an accounting of all of your works. And apart from Christ, what are a bunch of your works, uh, what, what are they going to be? They're all going to be sinful, aren't they? And can you imagine that? Uh, I sure wouldn't want to see a tally of mine. Uh, you know, but the idea here is, again, the book of life is that which contains the names of all the redeemed, all those who are ultimately saved. 
And so on the last day, as Daniel is saying here, that the redeemed will be saved. They will not be destroyed. The time will be cut short and they will be saved. Now, verse 2, as I say, is one of the best verses in all the Old Testament when it comes to the resurrection of the dead. And some people say, oh, you know, there's not much in the Old Testament about the rising from the dead. That's just in the New Testament. No, not at all. And we'll look at another one, too. But notice uh, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame, ever, shame and everlasting contempt. So many. Now, we've got to say here, this does not mean that it isn't anybody, isn't everybody. The many that's used here is in, uh, you might say, it contradicts the, the uh, thinking that it might be few. Just like Jesus said, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay? So it's many as opposed to a few, meaning everybody. Christ died for all. So. It, this is not meant to say that it's just going to be for, uh, uh, there are going to be some that aren't going to rise from the dust, okay? So what does it mean? What is, what is uh, Daniel talking about here when he says those who sleep in the dust? Yeah, those who have died. The Bible uses uh, the, the metaphor, I guess you would say, of sleep in a number of places, uh, throughout the Bible actually, to refer to death, okay? And in the dust would be where? In the ground. Yeah, in their graves, in the ground. Uh, we think of, um, you know, the uh, fact that, uh, for example, God created Adam out of what? Out of the dust of the ground. And after the sin of Adam and Eve, it says in Genesis 3.19, From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. Now, when do you folks hear that? When do you hear your pastors say that? Well, interment, yes, interment at a cemetery. That's a, that's a good point. I was thinking of another time, though. In fact, it comes up every year. Ash Wednesday, right. When uh, one of your pastors is, if you come up for the imposition of ashes on your forehead, and we, that's exactly what we will say. We will quote Genesis 3.19. From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. And it is a somber reminder for us of our own mortality, isn't it? That as a result of sin in this world, unfortunately, even though we are redeemed by Christ, we still will die. There will come a day. Unless Christ returns before, before that day, that would be great. But we still, unfortunately, will die. And so that's, uh, it's interesting, the Bible uses that right here in Daniel as a depiction or a description of those who have died. And notice there, what are they going to do at that time? They shall awake. Now, if you're using sleep as the metaphor for death, awake would be the metaphor for coming back to life, right? And so then, and notice there, there are two possibilities for everybody when they awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, right away we see here that for anyone who would want to teach or say that, well, you know, on the last day, I think everybody's going to make it. I think God's going to smile on the last day, and, uh, and he's a God of love, and he's going to say, oh, come on in, that's all right. Well, the Bible never speaks this way when it speaks about 
death, and life. There, there, is, there are only two possibilities. Okay? Either there is eternal life or there is eternal condemnation. Eternal life for all those whom God, through his working in their life, has created and sustained faith in Jesus Christ. Eternal death for all who have rejected God's offer of grace and forgiveness. There is no in-between. There is no sort of you got one foot here and one foot there. It's one or the other. Okay? And again, Daniel makes this clear. But isn't this a wonderful passage in the Old Testament to talk about the resurrection of the dead on the last day? The physical bodily resurrection. We won't look at it, but of course another great one is Job 19, where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see him. A perfect, again, testament to the bodily resurrection of the dead, again, in the Old Testament. And there are a couple other places, too, but we just don't have the time to, to go uh, looking at all those. But again, a beautiful uh, description of the last day. And then finally, verse 3, and those who are wise. Now, by wise, is Daniel thinking here, those who have a superior intellect and are very wise? No, he's talking about the wisdom of God here, isn't he? That it's God's wisdom uh, that through Christ all trust and believe are saved. And notice there, they shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Now, this is, again, figurative language. We don't think we're literally talking about uh, giving out lumens of light here. It's the idea they will be glorified on that day. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about our bodies on that day, that our bodies will be incorruptible. There's no, no longer any of the effects of sin, and they will be immortal, no longer able to die. We're, we're no longer mere mortals. We're immortal at that time. And they will be incorruptible, unable to be affected or impacted again by sin and all the effects of sin okay, in this world. And so uh, this idea of the glorified body, and we can't, we can't even begin to, to understand what that's going to be like, right? Here on this earth, we struggle with all the, uh, all the effects of unglorified bodies, right? And uh, as you get older, you experience more and more of that unglorifiedness uh, of the body. But on that day, no longer any of, those, any of those effects. And notice there, those who turn many to righteousness. Now, what does it mean by those who turn many to righteousness? Who might that be speaking about? Pastors would be included, I, I think, I hope. Teachers, anyone who is used by God, and I would include lay people as well, anyone who is used by God in the process of bringing Christ or bringing salvation to someone, right? They will also, as it says here, uh, shine like the stars forever and ever, okay? So again, this is a very short section, but again, we're pointing to that day, that last day, on the third last Sunday of the church year, coming up next uh, Sunday, okay? All right, any comments or questions on this? No? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the uh, statement was, or the question was, it almost that that's kind of scary. Uh, what talking about Satan being unleashed at that point and and ravaging 
uh, you know, warring against the church of God. But we do get that promise that God will intervene. First of all, he will shorten the days. And then notice, uh, we read in Revelation chapter 20, fire comes down from heaven and consumes these enemies who are encamped around the holy city, meaning the church itself, and ravaging it. And notice there uh, that uh, the people will be, in verse uh, 2, they will be delivered. Or, I'm sorry, in verse 1. That time, at that time, your people shall be delivered. But uh, again, I would certainly echo Luther that uh, I, I hope I'm not around to see that, quite frankly. That is not going to be a pretty sight. Uh, and you got, you know, it's, there's a whole lot of speculation about what form that's going to take and, and so on. And we have to say we just don't know. We're not given that a length of detail. You can read people who've got you know, all kinds of speculations about different countries and different rulers and all that. And I would say uh, right away that that's just, you know, that's... You may try and fit a scenario to, to this, but it, it's not given us in that kind of detail. Nancy? Well, we always have the comfort, though, that Bible verse that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Yes. The devil can't come and smack us. Right. That's a great, uh, Nancy just uh, draws our attention to Romans chapter 8. Remember where God promises through Paul that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And, uh, you think of what Jesus says also about his sheep in John chapter 10, verse 27, I think it is, that no one can snatch them out of my hand, okay? So he is not going to allow us to be snatched away. On the other hand, God does not force us to follow him, does, it? does he? We can turn our back on God. We can resist and reject. Uh, he does not force us to follow him, and we see that Unfortunately, even in, in the scriptures, even people face to face with Jesus turn around and walk away. Okay? But yes, that's a great, great reminder. Any other comments or questions? Yes? Yeah, Gog and Magog in uh, the book of Revelation, we don't know for sure. They're just nations, great armies and nations of people. Yeah. And again, you can read all kinds, you'll read people who are trying to make uh, one of them Russia. And, you know, and, and I just, again, I just steer clear of all that. And you can buy, you can pay money for their books and, and their uh, videos and all that. But again, I just, we just say we just don't know, you know, who it's going to be, when it's going to be. But it's just a picture of great armies and great nations warring and battling. Yes, yes, capitalized, right, for, for a nation, right. All right, anything else? All right. Oh, yes, Grace. Uh huh? Oh, okay. So the question was there's in Revelation, there's the book of life, but then there are other books mentioned, and then will there be a collection of those who have lived by the law? Yes, they'll be included in. Remember, there was the, the book of life, and then there were the, the books containing the works of the others. And when you don't have Christ, the only thing you've got to fall back on is your life, which is going to fall short. There is no question. In fact, from the moment we're conceived, we're conceived in sin, and we're just not going to make it. So, yes, and there would be all of the other people and their works who have not received God's offer of salvation. Right. And again... We're not necessarily talking about literal books here. It's just a, a way of picturing it for us, okay? So it's not necessarily literal books like we would have in a library today or of that nature. 
Yeah, just a, a listing, and of course, is, is certainly known to God. Okay? Yes? Lois? Yes, that's a, yes, that's a great question, or a great statement Lois made. When, when is our name written into that book of life? At our baptism, just like we were blessed to have at the uh, 8 o'clock service today. At our baptism, when God... Uh, you know, washes away our sin, makes us his child, and uh, also receives, uh, uh, guarantees us, uh, gives us an, an, an eternal inheritance in heaven. So, yeah, that's the point. Our name is written in the book of life. Okay. Good comments. Good questions. Anything else? All right. Let's move on then. And uh, tell you what, let's, we'll take these in order today. I think... Uh, well, maybe we better not. I'm just looking at it. We better go to, I want to make sure we get the gospel lesson in. I don't trust myself going through the uh, Hebrews without taking more time. So let's, uh, we'll go to the gospel. There's not a lot to say here. It's pretty self-explanatory. But Mark 13, verses 1 through 13, and Jesus, just to set up the, con uh, the context here, Jesus has just praised the widow's act of coming forth with two copper coins, or two mites, as they were called at that time, and placing them in the offering at the temple in the context of other very rich uh, and uh, well-to-do people coming and making a big show of their, of their giving. And in the midst of all that, Jesus singles out the widow and praises her to the disciples because he says she has given all that she had. And there was proportionately speaking, she gave all that she had. So that's what's just happened. They're still around the temple. Okay, so they're still in temple courtyards. We don't know exactly where. But now look at what happens. And we won't read this whole thing. We'll, we'll um, go through it verse by verse. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, now when we stop here, if you had to put your money on one of the disciples speaking up and asking a question, which one would it be? Peter, yeah, he's, he's always, always. But it says one of the disciples and uh, uh, said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So they're in the temple uh, courtyard, or one of the courtyards outside of the temple itself. And this is the temple, of course, that was the second temple. The first one was destroyed in 580 B.C. Uh, again, the Babylonians came and just literally ran over uh, God's people and destroyed the temple. God's people come back from their captivity, and in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see them rebuilding the temple once again. But the big improvement comes when Herod the Great adds on and, and greatly enhances the temple. Uh, just uh, Herod the Great was one of the great builders of all time. If you go to uh, Israel today you can see some of the results of his work. And uh, the massive stones that were used. Now, if you go to the Wailing Wall today in Jerusalem, you will see some of these massive stones. And, uh, in fact, we know from uh, Josephus that uh, one of these stones, for example, I've got to read the dimensions here, 37 feet long, 18 feet wide, 12 feet high. You imagine that? And getting that to, to, to be used in a building and using slaves to do that. And some of, those, some of these stones were actually decorated in real gold. So the disciples are just awestruck there. You know, 
look at the magnitude of all this, Jesus. You know, how beautiful this is. And again, if you go there today, the Wailing Wall is not uh, what the Jews who are there doing their their prayers and, and leaving their cards in. It is not the side of the Holy of Holies. It's the side of one of Herod the Great's great walls. In fact, you can you can go back in tunnels and get much closer today to where the Holy of Holies was at that time. Okay, but anyway, the disciples are just awestruck with this temple, as anyone would be. It was it was a, one of the wonders of, of that time in terms of of the building. So look at the contrast now. And Jesus said to them, "Do you see these great buildings?" There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wow. What a contrast. Now that happened, uh, it happened about 40 to 45 years later in 70 AD. And this time it wasn't the Babylonians, but it was the Romans. And a general named Titus who led the Romans and in 70 AD completely destroyed uh, Jerusalem and the temple, okay? And I'll tell you, if nothing else, doesn't this remind us of how um, tenuous uh, our life and everything that looks so solid around us can be, right? Uh, and it reminds all of us that there is going to come a great day when all of this will be no longer. All the great wonders, you know, buildings and skyscrapers and great monuments that people have built. Uh, and we marvel at its beauty today. And, you know, in another way, you think of what do people put their, their security and their trust and what do they marvel at today? There's going to come a day when it's all gone. And that's what Jesus is trying to get them to see here, you know. So instead of, you know, as, as he says elsewhere, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven right and uh, and so he goes on now the disciples are just you can tell this is really bothering them that Jesus said this that this great temple what this is gonna not a stone will be left so verse 3 uh, and as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple now if you go to uh, Jerusalem today you've got the temple and you can uh, temple mount over there and you just go through a little valley called the Kidron Valley, and you walk up to the Mount of Olives. It doesn't take that long. It's not that far. By calling the Kidron Valley a valley is kind of maybe an overstatement. It's not much. Uh, I don't know what to compare it to here, but it, it, it only takes about 15, 20 minutes, something like that, to walk down the Mount of Olives, uh, you know, over to where the temple area is. So... Jesus, and remember Mount of Olives for Maundy Thursday, where Jesus was, uh, went to pray with his disciples after he initiated the Lord's Supper and was arrested there. But that used to be one of the, apparently one of the favorite places that Jesus would go with his disciples and would instruct his disciples is on the Mount of Olives. And here's one of them right here. So as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, see, here we go. Peter and James and John and Andrew, now those were the first four disciples who were called, right? Ask him privately, so they're off to the side, tell us, when will these things be? In other words, this destruction of the temple you just talked about and no stone being left on top of another, when is this going to be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So when's it going to be and what can we look for leading up to it? What's going to you know, tell us that the time is really coming? And Jesus began to say to them, 
See that no one leads you astray. So false prophets, false Christ. Um, that word for being led astray is uh, a word planeo. It's used for a uh, wandering planet that's just meandering all around. So see to it that no one leaves you want, makes, leads you to wander around. In other words, away from the true faith. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, has that happened? Have there been false Christ, false messiahs? People, uh, look at all the cult leaders that we've had just in our own lifetime. You think of a guy like Jim Jones and, you know, all the others who have come saying, I am he, and leading people astray. And Jesus says, make sure you're not uh, left like a wandering planet out there, you know, uh, led astray. So Christ predicts there are going to be false Christs and false messiahs, you might say. And notice, unfortunately, they will lead many astray. That's the bad part, right? Verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, we've had uh, any number of wars and rumors of wars, haven't we? Uh, even, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, this timing wasn't intended, but here we are at the 100th uh, anniversary of Armistice Day, uh, signaling the, the ending of hostilities in World War I. Uh, and, and that was uh, followed, unfortunately, by World War II, by the Korean, uh, call it a conflict, but it was certainly a war, the Vietnam War, and we're in a war right now, aren't we? Not, maybe not in the old-style fashion, but a, a war against terrorism, fought in a much different way. So wars and rumors of wars, false Christs, and we look around and we say, yep, yep, and notice, though, what Jesus responds with. Do not be alarmed. So even though all this is happening, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Really. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are, are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, all of these things that Jesus mentions here, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, again, have we seen this happen? Absolutely. So what is Jesus' point here? The disciples want him to tell them an exact time. When is this going to happen? And what's going to be the signs leading up to it? Jesus is saying things that we today could look around and say, this has always been happening. So what's the point, do you think, for us today? Instead of knowing an exact time and point, be ready, exactly, great. Be ready. Any day could be the day, okay? And that's what we think Jesus is getting at here. These things are going to be taking place and be ready. In fact, but he says the end is not yet. There's going to be more stuff that's going to happen. And yes, it's going to happen. Now, what do you make of these are, are but the beginning of the birth pains? Uh, that might sound kind of negative, especially if you're a woman who has gone through labor, but it is anticipation of something what? Something great. You go through the birth pains, which obviously is the unpleasant part, but then what, what is the result? New life, right? So it, it, when you think about it, it's a beautiful way of depicting the, the bad stuff 
that's happening uh, before that birth takes place, or in this case, again, the analogy, the new life that comes for all of us in the resurrection from the dead, okay? So he sets this up. Now, notice again, verse 9, be on your guard. Again, this kind of be ready, be on your guard, you know, be on your toes here. For they will deliver, now, now this is going to be the disciples here, they will deliver you to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. So, this, imagine the disciples being on the receiving end of this. This doesn't sound too pleasant, does it? Especially the guys, remember what, what were they always concerned about? Who's going to something? Who's going to sit at your right, right? When you come into your kingdom. This doesn't sound like what they signed up for, right? Now, they're going to go to councils. Well, councils like the Sanhedrin, for example, uh, which uh, later on they would appear before. Uh, you'll be beaten in the synagogues. Paul is certainly going to have that happen, and, and others as well. You will stand before governors. We think of Paul before Felix, for example, in the book of Acts. And notice, why are they there to bear witness before them? Okay? To, to with their lips now, give witness to Christ. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And this is what Christ uh, obviously desires be done, that go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now, who's included in all nations? Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, too. And here again, Jesus giving clear testimony that his salvation is for all nations, just like he did in the Great Commission, okay? Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, Don't worry about what to say. You know, you don't have to write a sermon beforehand. Uh, just get up there. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. And that's going to happen certainly with, with Paul a number of times and with the other disciples as well. And then finally, uh, verse 12, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. So that's kind of bleak, isn't it? that we're going to see families divided over Christ, and some will actually hand over their, their next of kin uh, for persecution. And unfortunately, historically, that happened, ended up happening as well. It's sad. And notice finally, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Why, why are they hated? Because who is hated by the, uh, the, the forces against the church? Christ is hated, yeah. They'll hate you because they hate me, right? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then we, we get done reading this and we say, this is the gospel of our Lord, right? <laughs> Doesn't sound very uh, uh, good news, but those who endure gives us the message right at the very end that, that we will endure, right? So that does end on a positive note. But again... Uh, this next Sunday is not, is not real cheery when it comes to talking about the end of the world. This is one of those Sundays where we look at, again, the, 
the battle against the church and against believers that will be waged by Satan, by the world around us. But again, we are uh, elsewhere in Scripture given that assurance that, again, nothing will separate us from the love of God and that in Christ Jesus we have the forgiveness of all of our sin and will be saved. Okay? Let me stop there before we go back to Hebrews. Any questions, comments about this? Pretty straightforward, I think, what Jesus is saying here. All right, let's go to Hebrews then, and uh, we'll have to get through this pretty quickly. There is a great, great contrast here, and we're in, uh, for those at home, we're in Hebrews 10, starting at verse 11. And there's a great contrast here between the repeated sacrifices that the priests in the temple had to make and the once and for all sacrifice that Christ made. The priests are repeating their sacrifices daily. Christ won all-sufficient sacrifice. Okay? So let's, well, we don't have time to read it through the whole thing. Let's just go verse by verse. Uh, starting at verse 11 of Hebrews 10. And every priest... By the way, priests, we're talking obviously about the Jewish priests, the Old Testament priests and the Jewish priests of that day. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. If that sacrifice could, uh, of uh, animals could take away sins, they wouldn't have to do it anymore. They got to repeat it. God demands that life be given for sin and blood be shed because, as it says in the Old Testament, the life of any living being is in blood. So God demands that blood be shed, and the blood was... Uh, not only sacrifice of the animal, but the blood uh, on the Day of Atonement was sprinkled on the, on the altar and even sprinkled on the people. Okay? So, he, verse 11. Now, look at the contrast in verse 12. The, so, in 11, the priests are doing this daily, repeatedly, time after time. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. So you get a contra you get a, almost two things going on here. Notice there, one time, once and for all sacrifice. So what does that mean when it comes to our sins? Is there anything that we need to do to finish paying for those sins? Not at all. Once and for all sacrifice. Okay? That's why when we uh, we, we as Lutherans do not believe in what's called penance or after we've confessed our sins and been forgiven that we then are supposed to do something as a result. We don't believe that because, again, that takes away, we would say, from the all-sufficient once and for all sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. Okay? And so you get the idea of Christ being a priest here who has offered himself uh, on the cross but you also get a taste of, he is, where is he? At the right hand of God. So you get his kingly aspect there too, don't you? The fact that he is ruling along at the right hand of God. Now let's stop here for a second. Does God have a right hand, right and a left hand? No. It's a figurative way of speaking of the place of power and authority and majesty, we might say too, in all of creation. At the right hand of God. Okay, so you get both the priestly aspect of Christ here, his kingly aspect, nothing about the fact that he was a prophet in these verses, but 
We say he's a prophet, a priest, and a king, right? His threefold office. Review of confirmation stuff there, okay? Now, he is, then in verse 13, he's there at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Well, in the one sense, Christ has already won the victory over all the forces of evil and so on, but he's waiting until that time when all of his enemies are going to be placed uh, under his feet as a footstool. When is that going to happen? Judgment Day or the last day, right? When, when it finally comes to fulfillment or fruition. Now, footstool, that sounds like a, a place of honor or a place of uh, shame and degradation? Shame and degradation, that's exactly right. In Bible times, of course, people wore sandals. They walked in dirty, dusty places. And uh, you were supposed to have a place for your guests to wash their feet when they came into your house. And the uh, feet were, uh, look, I don't mean this is a pun, were looked down upon. But they, they were a uh, the bad, uh, you know, a place of dishonor. Let me put it that way. And so to be, to be a footstool that people put their feet on was a, a, a place of shame. So on that last day, all of his enemies will be made like a footstool under his feet. Okay? Again, look at verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected. That word for perfected is the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he said it is finished. In other words, it's for something to go across the finish line. And so they, that notice there, he has gotten all those who are being sanctified across the finish line. What does it mean to be sanctified? We sanctify something, what do we do? Make it holy. Absolutely. We make it holy, we set it apart for God's use. So all those who are being made holy, and how is it we are made holy? Only by Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ, right? Cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness, all right? Uh, then let's go on to verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, whoa, this is kind of important, we just glide right over this. He's going to quote here, the writer of the Hebrews is going to quote Jeremiah chapter 31. But notice here, he doesn't say, as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31, who does he say says this? Holy Spirit says this. Ah, so what doctrine do we have proof of here when it comes to at least Jeremiah, but we would say the Old Testament? It, it's, it's the inspiration of Scripture, right? The Holy Spirit said this back there through Jeremiah. That's kind of important. We kind of slide right over that. And notice there also, what does the Holy Spirit doing? He's bearing witness to us also. So we got two things in that little phrase there, that the Old Testament, at least we'll say Jeremiah 31, but I think the intention is all of it, is in the inspired, inerrant word of God. And we usually think of New Testament passages that prove that, but here's... here's uh, you know, the writer of the Hebrews is looking way back on Jeremiah. And notice also the work of the Holy Spirit to bear witness in us. Obviously, again, through that word. You know, we as Lutherans, word and sacrament, okay? But he quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He doesn't quote all of it, though. And uh, he says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and he skips a little bit right here because he wants to get to the important thing for this section. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
So complete is our forgiveness that God remembers our sins no more. In fact, they do not even exist when it comes to God's looking at us. He sees us in the righteousness of Christ. There simply are no sins there anymore, even though we still sin daily by thought, word, and deed. We are at the same time saints who have been forgiven by God, but sinners also who still sin daily, right? But a beautiful, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture talking about how thorough and how complete is our forgiveness. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews wants to get across, that this comes through the once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. Okay? That it's once and for all, no repetition needed. That's why we're not sacrificing animals here at St. Paul's on Sunday mornings. It's all been done. It's all been completed. Okay? Uh, quickly, verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, in other words, sins, or sin, there is no longer any offering for sin. Just what I just said. We, there's, no, there's no offering needed anymore. It's been done. Therefore, verse 19, in other words, since all this is true, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, the holy place, the most holy place, was entered into one time a year by the high priest on a day of atonement, the Yom Kippur, to sprinkle the blood of the offering onto the altar there. And notice what the writer of the Hebrews says now. Who has the confidence to do this now? We don't need a high priest anymore, do we, to do that? We have the confidence to go to the holy place. In other words, we have the confidence to go into the very presence of God. And we only have that confidence because of Christ, not because of us. Okay? And so uh, notice there, the, it's the blood of Jesus that is the means by which we go into these whole, the holy places. And verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Now, what's the curtain here? The divider between the holy place and the what? Most holy place or the holy of holies where that high priest went. And here Jesus is pictured as being that curtain that, that uh, lets us now in to that most holy place into the presence of God. So verse uh, uh, oh, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest, that great priest be? Jesus, obviously, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Oh, wait a minute, that sounds familiar to us as Lutherans. Divine service three, when we confess our sins in the beginning, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness, right? So we come before God in full confidence to confess our sins to him, not fearing God any longer, but through Christ confessing our sin. All right, we are out of time. People are even lined up at the door to get in here. And uh, we're going to close right now. Then let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.
Worldwide KFUO, a click away, 24 hours a day. Originating from the studios of KFUO Clayton, St. Louis, the messenger of good news.